The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. For all scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we are in fellowship, ready to study His Word, ready to focus on the things that the Holy Spirit has to teach us so that we can apply them in our lives, advance to spiritual maturity, and glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the message of the book of Daniel, for its unique place in the canon of Scripture, the detailed prophecies that are there, that many of which have already come true and many more to come true in the future, but how that increases our confidence in the accuracy and veracity of your word. Father, we thank you for the example of his life, for the example of uh, his uncompromising life in the midst of a pagan society, pagan world, and despite incredible pressure to give up his faith in you. And Father, we pray that we would be willing to step up to the challenge that the doctrines in this book present to our lives, that we might glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we begin our study of Daniel. Daniel, the name, comes from the writer of the book, Daniel, who's a one of the most significant figures in the Old Testament, if not one of the greatest leaders in all of human history. He is a man who was born a Jew, born in royal, uh, in the, into the royal family of Israel. He was not in the lineage of the king, but he was certainly uh, related to the king, according to uh, Josephus and a number of other sources. He was part of the... Uh, royal family captives that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in five or in six oh five BC. His name Daniel means God is judge or God is my judge, depending on how you understand the I in Daniel. That's a usually a first person common singular suffix in Hebrew, but sometimes it can also be inserted in order to make the spelling of the word or the pronouncing pronouncing of the word flow. So that it can mean God is my judge or God is judge, which certainly fits the theme of this book, which is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ controls history, that God controls history, and that despite all of the powerful kingdoms on the earth, despite all the machinations of political leaders and warriors and generals and empires, that God is the one who controls the destiny of man. And so there are some fantastic lessons for us to learn in this book and in our study of Daniel. 
Now, most of us at one time or another in our lives have wrestled with the fact that we are lit, trying to live out our Christian beliefs in the midst of a society and a, cult, and a culture that is hostile to much of what we believe, if not outright antagonistic. And we are put under pressure from family members, from peers, from uh, society at large to compromise our positions, not to take a stand. A classic example is what occurred recently in the hearings for Attorney General. Ashcroft was asked if he would set aside his religious convictions when he, in, in his uh, uh, application of the law. And the individual who asked that question demonstrated his own uh, compromise at every level of values to do that. Everybody has a... You, you, your religious system informs everything that we do, and what we do often reveals more about what we believe than what we say we believe. And so somebody who, who says that they can set aside their so-called religious convictions and, uh, and votes different from what they say they believe demonstrates what they really believe, and their religious convictions are really not that, that significant. And often, as believers, we get skeptical sometimes, and when we look at our political leaders, and we look at Washington, and we see... Uh, men of conviction, men whose convictions we uh, agree with, go to Washington and the next thing you know they're compromising here, they're making a deal here, and it seems like it's not long before uh, they're no longer taking the stand that they said they would, would take. Recently I read a well-known Christian author who made the comment that, that he did not see how any believer who was serious about his Christian life could ever be a politician because he had to compromise so much. Well, he wasn't thinking of Daniel. Daniel is a man who didn't compromise on anything, and God honored him and blessed him and raised him to not only the second highest position in the Babylonian Empire, but once the Persians came in and destroyed the Babylonian Empire, Daniel was again elevated to one of the highest positions in the Persian Empire. And I don't think that at any other time in history that's ever happened where somebody served in the second highest position in one empire and then served in the second highest position in a subsequent empire. And yet Daniel did that. And he was a man that had incredible integrity and demonstrates that we should not compromise at any point and whether or not it has negative consequences should not be a factor. I am reminded of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were to bow down before the idol of Nebuchadnezzar in the second or in the uh, third chapter, they said, our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down. And that should be the attitude of every believer, that we are going to uh, apply the Word of God and we are going to uncompromisingly stand for the Word of God, uh, whether we are honored or whether God blesses us or whether we survive or not. God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to take our stand. So this is a book that gives us a tremendous amount of confidence in God's control of history, and it also teaches us a lot about how a believer can be a success in life. And by that, I don't mean financial success or material success or career success, but success in the spiritual life. How a believer can be a success, maintain happiness, stability, and tranquility in life without compromising doctrine at all. 
This book is one that has come under tremendous attack. I don't think there is another book in all of the Bible that has been attacked by critics more than the book of Daniel. Daniel, the book of Daniel, the message of Daniel, represents the greatest offense to modern man contained in all of Scripture. It's for that reason that the critics believe that this book, more than any other, must be crushed. For the critics correctly realize that if the book of Daniel is left to stand as it, to be what it claims to be in the Scripture, to have the prophetic statements that it claims to have, then if Daniel is allowed to stand, then the case against Christianity is destroyed. Daniel is that crucial. Therefore, the most vehement attacks have been vented against this book in academic circles. If you've ever been involved in a college classroom or some other academic environment where Christianity has been attacked, it is probably Daniel that is at the forefront of that attack. It has borne the brunt of liberal attacks throughout the centuries, and it represents the key issues in every non-Christian attack against Christianity, especially liberal rationalism. Because the assumption of the liberal rationalist is that God is not actually involved in human history. God does not intervene. There is no supernatural involvement by God in history at all. And where Daniel gives that the lie is in all of the detailed prophecies, one of which we've studied several times, and that is the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, where that prophecy predicts to the day the entrance of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And that is only one of many prophecies. And those are indeed prophecies, that is, telling the future. Where in the book of Daniel, you have Daniel predicting the, the uh, defeat of the Babylonian Empire by the Persians, the defeat of the Persians by the Greeks, the subsequent division, fourfold division of the Greek Empire, the rise of the Seleucid Empire, one of those heirs to the Greek Empire, and the attack of Antiochus Epiphanes on the Jews and his defilement of the temple. All of that is predicted in detail in Daniel. And if that is true, and if Daniel is what he claims to be, that is writing history ahead of time, which is what prophecy is, then that shows that God does indeed interact in human history. He is involved and he is the God who is over all of the nations. One Christian scholar has correctly noted that the book of Daniel is especially fitted to be a battlefield between faith and unbelief. It admits of no half measures. It is either divine or an imposter. That is written by E.B. Pusey. Now, if you are a thinking Christian and you ever get involved in any kind of uh, academic discussion over the Scriptures, then you need to have an understanding of many of these issues in Daniel because this is the place where you will be attacked. As a believer, we always need to know how to defend ourselves against these attacks. Peter tells us that we are to be always ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So if somebody asks you, how do you know that these are um, uh, accurate prophecies, you need to be able to answer them to some degree. You may include as part of that answer giving them a tape, but uh, for the most part, we need to be able to give an answer to know this information and to be able to defend what we believe and not come across as some airhead Christian who just says, well, I believe that because that's what my church believes, which is how most Christians try to answer attacks. 
E.J. Young, another well-known Old Testament scholar, writes, The book of Daniel purports to be serious history. It claims to be a revelation from the God of heaven which concerns the future welfare of men and nations. Now, if Daniel is not what he claims to be, then the Bible is just another human book and has no real value or significance, or at least no more than any other book. But this book can be defended against its attacks, and just because it is attacked and assaulted doesn't mean that there are any real problems. The reasons this book offends so many people and brings so many attacks is for one simple reason. The prophecies are so clear, the details are so precise, and the prophecies that have been, re- been fulfilled already have been so completely fulfilled. The argument of the book of Daniel shows the existence of a supernatural God who reveals himself clearly and distinctly to men centuries before these events in human history take place. Prophecies that the God of history makes come to pass 100%. Though many of the prophecies in Daniel have not yet been fulfilled, those which have, have come to pass 100%, and the non-Christian finds that to be completely offensive. Because what it means to them is that they are wrong and that there is a God who will hold them accountable. People who attack Daniel hate the concept of a personal infinite God who speaks to his creatures and who espouses absolutes and will hold them accountable to those absolutes. There are no reasons, there are no intellectual reasons, there are no historical reasons why this book should not be considered as authoritative as any other book in the canon. The only reasons that have ever been brought to bear against Daniel being part of the canon and being what he claims to be are those that come from the liberal rationalist who from, whose hidden presupposition is that God just can't do this. God is not going to act in such a way as to intervene in human history. Daniel, though, is a book that has had tremendous impact throughout history. Probably no other book is more well-known for its prophecy other than Revelation. Although Daniel is usually read more by people than Revelation is. People are familiar with the stories of, of uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People are familiar with the story about Daniel in the lion's den. People are familiar with, to some degree, the image that Nebuchadnezzar constructs. These are things that are passed on and told and stories that are well known. And so the book of Daniel is very popular. But not only has Daniel had an impact on believers because of his life testimony and because of the doctrine that's here, but Daniel has also had an impact on the thinking of the non-Christian world. Daniel wrote in the time period in the middle of the 6th century B.C. between 586 B.C. and 536 B.C., the 6th century B.C. Now, at that same time, there are many strange things that happened throughout the world. Many significant events took place during this time frame. And one cannot help but think that there must be some correlation. For example, it was during the 6th century B.C. that Zoroastrianism arose in Persia. It was also during this time that there was a major reformation in Hinduism, which led to its increased popularity in India. Confucianism arose in China. Buddha started his quest, and Buddhism was born in the 6th century B.C., Judaism, in its legalistic form, what we come to be known as uh, Pharisaism by the New Testament, was also had its origin in the late 6th century B.C. 
and at the same time, you had the pre-Socratics, Thales, Anaximander, and others in Greek philosophy laid the foundation for Greek thought. All of this happened in the 6th century. And I think as we go through our study of Daniel, we'll see that it, it's no, no coincidence, but that the existence of Daniel and what God revealed to Daniel about the history of mankind played an important role and that these other events are related because of the angelic conflict to what was revealed to Daniel because it was at that time and in this book and through these revelations that even Satan himself and the angels understood the broad panorama of human history in a way they, they never did before. So I think, it's a bit of speculation, but I think that, that as God revealed these things to Daniel in the Middle East, then Satan immediately put into action a number of different ploys in order to move to block God's actions in human history. And that's why centuries and centuries and centuries had gone by when there was no development whatsoever, no new religious developments, nothing had happened on the scene, everything was stable and static, and then all of a sudden in the 6th century, wham, all over the world there are these major religious shifts and innovations taking place. And what's happening with Israel? We've studied this again and again. Israel is a center point of God's plan for human history. And what's happening in the nation Israel? We have a man, Daniel, through whom God is giving fantastic revelation. Daniel not only had an impact on the thinking in the ancient world, but he had impact on the thinking in the modern world. According to a well-known historian, R.G. Collingswood, in his book, The Idea of History, Daniel was the foundation of Hegel's thought. Now, Georg Hegel was a German philosopher in the mid to early 19th century, and he wrote a lot about history, and in his concept of history, there were four basic kingdoms in history. The Oriental Kingdom, which would be tantamount to Persia, the Kingdom of Greece, the Kingdom of Rome, and then the Kingdom of Germany. And of course, Hegelian thought and this whole concept of the Kingdom of Germany being the last kingdom had a role in eventually influencing in its influence on German thought and influencing uh, the philosophy of German nationalism that developed eventually into Nazism and the rise of Adolf Hitler. It also had a tremendous impact, or Hegel's philosophy had a tremendous in impact on a man by the name of Karl Marx and his followers. And it's interesting that the most ardent opponent in the last 150 years of Christianity communism obtains its very philosophy of history ultimately from Scripture. And then it, of course, perverts it. The whole concept of historical progress in Marxism and was stolen from the Bible and corrupted by Marx. And it took the idea of an ultimate perfect kingdom that would be uh, divinely initiated was then perverted to become a future utopic human kingdom. But Marxism and Hegelianism got their ideas ultimately from Daniel. So Daniel is one of the most significant books for many, many reasons that are uh, written and contained within the canon of Scripture. Now, as we go through this, I would recommend, I was going to ask Jim if he were here tonight, uh, I think I got a box of books of the uh, RB theme books on Daniel 1 through 6. And you might want to get that. I know I ordered a bunch of extra ones. You got are there more out there, Al? So that you can pick those up and uh, read along in there for some 
uh, additional help, and that just covers 1 through 6. They never got around to publishing 7 through uh, 12, so we'll just have to make do with the first six chapters. Now, as I stated in the introduction, there are many attacks on the book of Daniel by the liberal critics. I'm not going to bore you with going through a detailed lecture on that. That will drive most of you nuts in one hour, so I'll just hit those high points as we go along. And right away, before we get very far, we have to deal with the first problem. For those of you who are a little more interested in these, I'll try to make a note of them when we hit them so that you can uh, uh, keep a record of the, these various problems that are raised by the liberal critics of Daniel. But the first problem has to do with the date of Daniel. When was Daniel written? And the issue here is, was it written many years later as history rather than prophecy. If Daniel actually wrote between 586 and 536 B.C., then when he wrote about the kingdoms of Persia, Greece, and subsequent kingdoms, then that would be true prophecy. But if he didn't write until some 400 years later in approximately 150 B.C., as the uh, liberal critics suggest, then he wasn't writing before the fact, he was writing after the fact, and this then becomes a case of pious forgery. And it was really somebody writing to try to uh, falsely substantiate faith, writing events afterwards. And so this is one reason why the liberals always choose to go after Daniel. They believe that it is the Achilles heel of the Bible. If you can destroy the credibility of Daniel then you have destroyed the credibility of the rest of Scripture. Now, the attack on Daniel goes back to uh, Porphyry, who was a 3rd century A.D., that's about 200 years after Christ. Porphyry was a 3rd century A.D. student of origin who came under the influence of Neoplatonism, which was a school of Greek philosophy. And he not only abandoned Christianity, but he became a hostile enemy to Christianity. And even as far back as the 3rd century A.D., Porphyry understood that if you destroyed the credibility of Daniel, then you have destroyed Christianity. And so he wrote a 15-volume work to discredit Daniel. Unfortunately, it was burned by Theodosian, so we don't know what his uh, reasoning was or what his attacks were, but that book was completely destroyed. There are no extant copies of it. The attacks, though, against Daniel are universally accepted by, liberal and anybody, by liberals, and anybody who goes to college and takes a Western civilization course is probably going to run into a professor who is going to start assaulting Daniel. It happened to me in my first year of college, and I think it will happen to just about anybody, or at least uh, if they have a decent professor who has uh, studied at the schools of liberal higher learning. So we have to be prepared, and as parents, that's one thing you need to do, is prepare your children so that when they go off to college, then they are able to withstand the intellectual assaults against Christianity. And that's one of the things we're trying to do, and we will be developing in the coming years here as our the average age of our kids gets older into junior high and high school. We will be strengthening the curriculum for that age group in order to give them the kind of uh, information and ammunition they need in order to be able to withstand those attacks. I can't tell you how many friends of mine, how many people I knew who were believers, but who never had the the foundations, who were never given the information when they got to college 
And they got into sociology classes and biology classes and psychology. More often it was in the liberal arts classes than in science classroom. They were, came under the assault. Their Christian beliefs came under the assault in the classroom. And they didn't have, and they had never heard the correct answers. They had never heard the information that substantiated the claims of Scripture. And their faith came under severe assault. And in many cases, they were shipwrecked. Now, the Scripture tells us that Daniel was a historic person who went into captivity in 605 B.C. Now, in order to understand Daniel, we're going to have to make sure we understand the framework of not only Jewish history, but also Babylonian and Persian history. We're going to become experts by the time this is over with in ancient history. And it's not just ancient history because everything that happened then is used to teach things that are going on today. So let's just review a minute the last four kings in Israel, uh, in Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Josiah was the last good king in the south, and he was killed in 609 B.C. when he tried to stop uh, Pharaoh Necho from going north to assist the um, Assyrians in defeating uh, Nebuchadnezzar at the Battle of uh, Carchemish. And he was succeeded by Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, who reigned for all of eight months before he was dethroned. And he was one of the worst kings in, in the southern kingdom. And he was succeeded by Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, Jehoahaz was the third son of Josiah. Jehoiakim was the second son of Josiah. And in 605 B.C., Right there in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar had defeated Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish up on the Euphrates River and was following him in hot pursuit down through Syria and on down through Israel. All of a sudden, he came to a high mountain and he saw a beautiful city in the distance, sent out his scouts to find out what it was, and it was Jerusalem. So he let his pursuit team continue to chase Necho and he turned the majority of the army around and... Uh, uh, laid siege to Jerusalem. He was successful, and uh, before he could conclude his conquest of Judah, his father, Nabopolassar, died, and so Nebuchadnezzar had to, to make haste back to Babylon to secure his succession to the throne. And uh, before he left, he decided he wanted to secure his conquest of Jerusalem, so he called for uh, 50 members of the royal family to be given to him as hostages or as captives, and he would take them back to Babylon with him and train them in all of the education of the Babylonians so that they could serve in the government there. And Daniel was among those captives. There were 50 taken. They were members of the royal family. They weren't necessarily direct heirs to the kingship, but they were all Jewish aristocrats, and they were all members of the royal family. So it's 605 B.C., that Daniel is taken to uh, Babylon. The Babylonian captivity itself doesn't start until 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar comes back, and that's his third invasion of the land, when he completely destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple. And that captivity lasts until 536 B.C., and Daniel's lifespan life covers that entire period. He was probably close to 90 when he... Uh, finally died, but he lived long enough to see the first group of Jews return to the land. So that gives you a bit of an overview 
as to the history of this time frame. Now, after, after the Babylonian captivity, uh, there's the subsequent rise. Of, there, of course, right before that, there's the rise of the Persian Empire. Following that, the rise of the Greek Empire and the Hasmonean Empire, or the, the uh, Seleucids, and then the Hasmonean Empire, the Maccabean Revolt, and the rise of the Roman Empire, all of which was foreseen by uh, Daniel and was written down ahead of time in this book. Now, the question then is whether or not this was written ahead of time as prophecy or whether it's written afterward as history. Now, why is this important? Well, first of all, it's important because the sovereignty of God is at stake. We can see that God, who can accurately predict the future, can also control the future. He can tell us not only what will come to pass, but He can then oversee human history and orchestrate things behind the scenes without compromising human volition to bring about that which He has decreed. So it emphasizes the sovereignty of God over the affairs of man and the fact that Jesus Christ controls history, that no matter how dark things may look, no matter how disastrous the horizon uh, of events may may seem, Jesus Christ is in control of history. If He controls hi- macro history, He controls the history of our lives. And no matter how horrible things might seem to us at some point in our lives, we know that God is the one who is still in control. Second reason it's important is because the nature of the Bible is at stake. If the Bible gives real predictive prophecy, then we can be sure it comes from God. If not, it's just another human book and has no more value than any other human book. And third, it's important because the nature of Jesus Christ is at stake. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus assumes the veracity of Daniel, that Daniel was a historical figure who lived and wrote in the 5th century B.C., and that Daniel's uh, prophecies were accurate and correct. If he was wrong then he was fallible and he was not undiminished deity and true humanity and he was not the perfect God-man. So the importance of the dating is that it involves, first, the sovereignty of God, secondly, the nature of Scripture, and third, the nature of Jesus Christ and his veracity. Now, in terms of the liberal argument, remember the liberal argument is that Daniel really wasn't written in 586 B.C. to 536 B.C. It was really written in in 165 B.C., and by then all these events had taken place, or most of them had taken place, and so it's not prophecy, it's history. Now, what kind of arguments do they use to substantiate their, um, their position? Well, the first has to do with how they divide up the Bible, how they divide up the Bible. They uh, look at the Hebrew Bible, and the Old Testament was set up into three divisions, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Torah means instruction. Torah, Hebrew for instruction, refers to the first five books of the Pentateuch, the basic instruction manual for the Old Testament. It's the foundation for everything else in the Old Testament. That's why, second to Daniel, Genesis 1 through 11 is the other area of Scripture that is most under attack. If you can destroy the validity of Genesis 1 through 11, then you've destroyed the rest of the Bible because every other doctrine... Every major teaching in Scripture is built on the veracity of Genesis 1 through 11. If it didn't happen historically that way, then there is no salvation, need for salvation from sin because the penalty for sin is death. Not just spiritual death, that's the penalty, but the consequence is physical death 
and there was no physical death before sin, and if there was, as evolution proclaims, remember death is the mechanism of evolution, and how would you like to believe in a system for the development and advance of human history that is built on death and suffering? Well, that's what, human, that's what the whole evolutionary theory does. It's built on death and suffering. And if death, for the evolutionist, is normal. It's natural. It's part of the everyday order of things. For the Christian, death is abnormal. It is the result of sin, and it needs to be dealt with by Christ on the cross. If death, physical death, didn't enter into human history as a result of Adam's sin, then there's no need for Christ to go to the cross and die physically. His spiritual death paid the penalty of sin. His physical death uh, uh, enabled him to have victory over physical death in the resurrection. That's Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 8 and following. So the Torah is the instruction that lays the foundation, followed by the Nevi'im, the prophets, and that's what Nevi'im means, is the prophets, and they gave the prophetic commentary on past and future history. And then the Ketavim were the writings. Now we've also looked at this chart. This is how the Hebrew canon was organized. Not your familiar English Bible, but the Hebrew Bible. You had three divisions, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Nevi'im, consisting of the former prophets, Joshua through Kings. Remember in the Old Testament, they didn't have First and Second Kings. That one, they were divided that way because of the lengths of the scrolls. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And then the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. We, call, we separate the Twelve into distinct minor prophets, but they, in the Jewish canon, it's just the Twelve. And then the Ketavim. Now, we would think, because of the organization of our English Bible, that Daniel would be part of the Nevi'im, the prophets, because there's so much prophecy in Daniel. But Daniel is not included by the Jews in the Nevi'im. He, in the English Bible, he comes after Ezekiel and before the Twelve, so that's where we would put him. We would think of Daniel as a prophecy book. But the Jews did not view Daniel as a prophet, but as a seer, as a, as a wise man. He was so therefore listed among the Ketavim, the writings, which were the writings of the wise. The wisdom sayings, the chokhmah is the Hebrew word. Uh, chokhmah meaning wisdom or the application of doctrine. Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Daniel. Daniel is listed among the Ketavim. Now, the, the liberal wants to suggest that the reason uh, Daniel is listed in the Ketavim is because these three sections developed chronologically in the history of Israel. First, there was the, Nebi, the, the Torah, and those five books were written and canonized. Then the prophets, and those books were written and canonized. And then the Ketavim. The problem is that in the Jewish arrangement of the canon that they assume is false. The, the arrangement of the Jewish canon was not based on chronology, but was based on its, um, its subject matter, on its, its topics. These things were arranged topically. So that Genesis through Deuteronomy all covered, they were first chronologically as well, but they covered the foundational instruction for the life of Israel, that the priests would teach and instruct the people on how to have a relationship with God, how to come before God, how to serve God. Then the Nevi'im modified that because of Israel's disobedience. There was necessity for modification. 
And the Ketuvim was the were the wise things had to do with application, and that's why Daniel fits there. Daniel is not just about prophecy, but it is the example of how a, a man applied doctrine in one of the most pagan empires, really in two of the most pagan empires, the most hostile uh, environment for doctrine that you could ever imagine. Few of us have ever or will ever face the kind of manipulation, the kind of pressure, the kind of overt hostility that Daniel faced in Babylon and later in Persia in his role there in both of those empires. And yet Daniel demonstrates for us the wise application of Scripture and shows how a believer can advance to the second highest position in the land without compromising doctrine. He shows us the importance of making doctrine the highest priority in our lives. Now, another argument that the critics use against Daniel is um, to try to demonstrate a late date. There was a, a manuscript written and that was discovered at Qumran that's dated to about 165. Liberals, of course, try to redate it and make it a little later, like about 125. But even many liberals now admit that it has to be dated at least, and no earlier, than 165 B.C. You see, their argument is basically circular. They don't tell you that. It's not readily apparent, but it's a circular argument. Daniel can't be predictive because predictive prophecy would mean that God intervenes in history. God doesn't intervene in history, so therefore it can't be predictive prophecy. That's how they are. They're assuming their conclusion in their premise. It's called begging the question. It's a logical fallacy. But people get away with it because they never make it evident. But the presupposition of all the liberal attacks on the Scripture are that God really can't act that way. Well, how do you know that? Well, because reason tells us that. Their ultimate authority is reason. So they argue that Daniel must be late because its prophecies are too detailed to be real. It's impossible for prophecy to be that accurate according to the liberals. They must be made up. But we discovered in 1948 at Qumran, at the Wadi Qumran in the Dead Sea, uh, that there were 17 different manuscripts of Daniel. We know there's 17 different manuscripts by studying the handwriting. It's clear that they were copied by 17 different people. The the um, uh, study of the handwriting reveals that. And one of the most significant fragments of the book of Daniel covers the section from 2-4, chapter 2, verse 4, where the text shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic. Daniel is not written in all Hebrew, unlike most Old Testament books. It's written in two different languages. It's written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. And from 2-4 down through about chapter 9, it's, uh, or through chapter 8, it's written in Aramaic because that subject matter of those chapters is on the God's plan for Gentile nations. So part of this fragment, which starts in 2-4 and goes down through the Aramaic section, can't be dated any later than about 165 B.C. However, Analysis of the paleography, that is the handwriting, uh, demonstrate that the date cannot be any later than 200 B.C. Now, if you have to move the date of this manuscript, and this isn't the original, this is just a copy. If you have to move the date back and it can't be any later than 200, 
then that means that the original has to be a minimum of 50, 100, or 150 years earlier. Now, to show the total inconsistency of the liberal, the liberal uses that same, has used that same evidence and accepted that same evidence as far as the dating of First and Second Chronicles is concerned. The liberals used to say First and Second Chronicles came after the Maccabean Empire sometime around 100 to 150 B.C., but the study of the handwriting, the paleography of Chronicles also demonstrated, uh, those, those manuscripts of Qumran also demonstrated that, that they were much older. So now they, they agree more with the conservative, removed the date much, much earlier, so that uh, they would put Chronicles into the same era as Ecclesiastes and some of the Psalms. Well, if they accept that reasoning for Chronicles and Psalms, and they ought to accept it for Daniel. But they won't. Why? Because if, if, you, if they are forced to accept Daniel as being what it claims to be, then it destroys liberalism. And it destroys liberal theology. And autonomous man who is in rebellion against his sovereign creator cannot stand to think that he is supposed to be obedient to a God who controls human history. So when we look at this, we have to ask the question, why then is Daniel so important? And why is Daniel included in this one section called the the writings? And that is because of the evidence of applied doctrine in the man's life. And this gives us a clue as to the purpose of the book. It is designed to teach the importance of doctrine. Not just prophecy, not just God's control of human history but the importance and priority of doctrine in the believer's life. Daniel is written to teach us how to live a spiritually skillful life in the midst of a hostile, pagan, idolatrous environment. It's written to show us that you don't need to compromise, you don't need to give in to some sort of expedient course of action, and you don't have to go along to get along just to advance in life. That God is the one who is in control of the believer's promotion or not, not mankind. It's not your job, it's not your employer, it's not your culture, it's not the political system. It's God who's in control, not man. And so this gives the believer confidence in the control of God in every detail of the believer's life. Furthermore, we see that, that as wisdom literature, we see its importance because it addresses every area of life. Scripture doesn't just address salvation and the spiritual life, prayer, and other so-called spiritual practices. But the Bible has something to say about everything in life. Economics, philosophy, politics, history, literature. The greatest literature that's ever been written is contained in the pages of Scripture. The Bible addresses everything at some level. So we are forced in Daniel to pay attention to a believer living his life in the midst of a hostile environment. The kingdom of man becomes a major theme. The concept of kingdom is a major theme in the book of Daniel. And we see how the believer is living in the kingdom of man, surrounded by human viewpoints, surrounded by paganism, and in many cases pressure to try to conform to the pagan thinking around him. Daniel faced one of the most concentrated doses of paganism of any believer in history. And yet, you know what? Daniel survived, and Daniel refused to compromise, and he didn't have any Christian fellowship to help him. 
He didn't have a priesthood to help him. He didn't have prophet buddies to go home and give him encouragement. He didn't have any of these so-called spiritual formation groups that are so um, popular today as uh, spiritual crutches because people don't have the uh, guts and initiative to stand up on their own two feet on top of, of, of a word of God that is trustworthy. People have given that up. And yet what we see with Daniel is that he's all by himself. There's no church. There's no congregation. There's no Christian fellowship. All he has is the Word of God, and he trusts it implicitly. Because of that, he handles the stress, the peer pressure, and all the manipulation of some of the most powerful men, the wealthiest men in all of human history, and some of the most vindictive people, some of the uh, um, wise men and counselors that surrounded both Nebuchadnezzar in the earlier stage and Cyrus, Darius in the latter stage, did everything they could to destroy Daniel, except Daniel never compromised. So the purpose for Daniel then is to show the wisdom for living in the kingdom of man until the kingdom of God arrives. Now, by way of background and to get a little understanding of what's going on here, let's turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel chapter 14, just pick up a little background. Ezekiel 14.1, we read, Then some elders of Israel came to me, me as Ezekiel, and sat down before me. Now let's understand a little bit about the background here and who Ezekiel was. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. They're about the same age. But Ezekiel's ministry did not start until 593 B.C. By the time Ezekiel's ministry started, Daniel had already been in captivity 13 years. 12 to 13 years. So when Daniel went into captivity at the age of 14, by the time Ezekiel's ministry started in 593, Daniel is 29 or 30. He's, a, he's still a young man. He hasn't advanced to the highest level he will advance. Daniel hasn't even gone associate mostly with Daniel. The only thing in the book of Daniel that has occurred by this point is Daniel 1. But at this point, Ezekiel is in Babylon. He was he was taken captive in the second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar in 596. And there was a group of Jews taken and they had a settlement down on the river Kabar in the southwestern part of what is now modern Iraq. And there's a number of leaders there who have been following all the false teachers, you know, like all the false, so many of the false evangelists on television today and all the liberal theologians. And it's amazing that when we look at our political leaders, the some of the uh, so-called spiritual leaders that have risen to the top in recent years who are giving them counsel, and we wonder what they're counseling them from. But um, these people are, it's the blind leading the blind. Well, the same situation existed in Ezekiel's day. And things were looking pretty bad for them as they looked over to Israel and they saw that, that, that the nation was threatened. So they thought, well, we'll go to Ezekiel and find out what Ezekiel had to say. So they came to Ezekiel to see what he had to say, and God gave Ezekiel a message. He said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, that's a title for the prophet, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. That's in their minds. They are worshiping something other than God. It's not just the physical idol. It is the fact that there's a mental And mental idolatry always precedes physical idolatry. Because with the mind you decide to reject God, and whenever we reject God, something else moves into the vacuum. 
Something else always replaces God, and we always worship some aspect of the creation. Now, it's interesting (coughs) that the word for idol in Hebrew is the word gilul. Gilul. Now, that has a very fascinating uh, etymology. It... um, Basically, the root word gal or ghoul means a rolled object of wood or metal. The word uh, gel or galal also became, which has its root in this, because it's talking about something that's been rolled or rounded, it became the common word for dung or manure, specifically dung pellets. Now, that took me back to my days of camping in South Texas when we've got a little critter down there called a, uh, a uh, dung beetle or tumblebug. And these tumblebugs get into the manure and they start rolling it all up. And it's you know, one of God's little creatures to help break everything down and return it to the soil. But um, this shows God's tremendous sense of humor that he use, uses in Hebrew a word for idol that also means dung. It means something that is rolled, and someone sort of sarcastically has commented that this has something to do with dung rolling downhill, maybe. But that's a very ancient concept. And um, it also indicates God's comments about idolatry. That when you replace God with anything in life as being more important, then your life is going to turn to dung. So there's a wonderful little sense of humor here, a little paranomasia uh, from God the Holy Spirit. So they set up these idols in their hearts, and the word there is lave in the Hebrew, which has to do with their mentality and their thinking. All idolatry starts there. We all begin with intellectual idols, and that's what we have today, the idols of the mind. Academic rationalism, subjectivity, today the great God of America is emotion. How does it make me feel? And that's what we worship, is whatever is going to make me feel better, whatever is going to make my life smoother, whatever is going to make, make me um, happier at the moment. Whether it's money, career, education, sex, entertainment, material possessions, sports, the trappings of success, popularity, fame, whatever it might be, all, any of these things might be good in the proper role and position, but whenever any of these things supplant our devotion to God and making doctrine the number one priority in our lives and the lives of our children, then the next thing we know is we are on the road to collapse. And this is what was happening in Israel at the time. So God speaks to these men and He tells them that that, uh, any man of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart, this is in verse 4, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, And then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter, and in the matter, in view of the multitude of his idols. Now, I don't want to do a detailed study of this, so we'll skip down to verse 10. And in verse 10 we read, And they will bear the punishment of their iniquity, that is, the false leaders, because they are the ones who have deceived the nation. As the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be. God is going to bring divine discipline on them. And then in verse 11 he says, In order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves. See, there's a place for, excessive, for harsh discipline in order to prevent 
spiritual collapse in the future. Because of this discipline, Israel is no longer going to be involved in the kind of idolatrous systems of Baal worship and the other fertility cults. They go the other way and they get into legalism. But they no longer succumb to uh, overt idolatry. Now, in verse 11, God says, They will no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God. In other words, God is saying there will be survivors. The nation will continue. But those who survive successfully, those who are happy, those who have stability in the midst of the uh, coming catastrophe, are those who have a profound spiritual life, those who have inner resources to draw on that come from doctrine. And we know that it's the young people. For example, it's Daniel, Ezekiel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, who are the ones who survived the catastrophe of the destruction of their nation. And these are the ones who become the foundation for the future of the nation. Now, how did that happen? It happened first because of their positive volition. Those kids were positive to doctrine when they were kids, when they were back in Israel, when their parents were training them. But beyond that, their uncompromising position, their integrity, as demonstrated in Daniel 1, is there because of what their parents did. They are a testimony to parents who did not compromise the Word of God. Parents who did not become distracted by the details of life, but focused on their priorities as outlined in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He's the number one priority in your life. Nothing else matters if God is not at the center of everything. Verse 6, And these words, which I am commanding you today, and that is the entire uh, panorama of doctrine in Deuteronomy, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, that is, on your mind, the thinking part of the soul. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, when you rise up. Now, he's not talking about lecturing your kids. He's not talking about reading them a Bible story every night. He's talking about day in and day out, when you're sitting down at breakfast, when you're going out and you're playing sports, and something happens, and you get a chance to teach them how a believer is to respond in difficult situations. You go through family situations, you say, okay, we've got a decision to make here, here's how we apply doctrine. Your kids come home from school, they've got a problem. You say, okay, what does the Bible say? Where do we go? You teach them in life situations. Help them learn how to make decisions and how to apply doctrine in those situations. And the word translated teach, the word translated teach is interesting. It is the Hebrew word shanan. And in the cow stem, it means to sharpen, like you sharpen a knife. And how do you do that? You take a whetstone and you just continue to... to uh, Move it across that whetstone and to grind down that blade. And it takes a lot of strokes on that whetstone before you finally drive the, the, bend back the edge enough to where you sharpen it and put an edge on that. And that's re- repetition. So in the PL stem, which is the intensified stem in the Hebrew, it comes to mean to repeat. So the way that should be translated is, you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. That's how you learn, is repetition over and over and over again. But you know what, folks? As parents, before you can do that, that doctrine has to be deep in your soul. You have to be applying it that way. Because if you're not applying it that way, those kids are going to spot it in a second. They have to see you that you know it and you apply it, and the doctrine is your priority. And that means you're going to be at Bible class Sunday, 
You're going to be at Bible class Wednesday night. You're going to be popping tapes in your car when you go out and get in the car and take the kids to a sports event. When you turn on the ignition, a tape's going to come on. And they're going to know you've been listening to tapes. And they're going to know that doctrine is the most important thing in your life. I don't care what else you do for your kids. I don't care what kind of music lessons you give them, dance lessons, sports. I don't care what kind of exposure you give them to all the culture in the world. If you don't set the priority as doctrine, then everything else is a sham. Because if you knew today that in three years this country was going to be overrun, that all your money was going to be gone, you'd never see your kids again, what would you do different? What would you do to prepare your kids to be able to handle that so that when they were removed from this country and put in another culture, would they be able to stand like a Daniel, like a Hananiah, like an Azariah, like a Mishael? Or would they just compromise and fall apart? But that's what Daniel's parents did for him, and that's what the other men's parents did for them. They were going, even their parents were going against the flow of the perverted culture in Israel at that time. Deuteronomy 11:18 repeats this. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And that means everything, it affects everything you do. They shall be as funnels on your forehead. That means it affects everything you think. And you shall teach them that same word, Shanan. You shall repeat them to your sons, talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, your life is going to be characterized. You, you ever notice that there's some people you get around, all, especially some men, every time they, they, it's either they talk about work or they talk about sports. I don't know, the women, maybe it's something else, maybe it's cooking, I don't know. But every t- that's what they're interested in. But for the believer who's positive, what they talk about when everything else doesn't have to be talked about is they're talking about doctrine. They're talking about the Word. And it becomes contagious. I remember when I was in college in Houston that we'd go to Bible class and after Bible class we'd get a group and we'd all go to some place um, to get a hamburger or to get coffee and we'd sit there and we'd talk about whatever we learned that night for an hour, hour and a half because we were excited about it. Doctrine was the most important thing to us. And what happens is usually as people get older, they become consumed with 401k plans and their careers and retirement and raising the grandkids and then the grandkids and everything else. And uh, next thing you know, doctrine just, well, I remember when it used to be really important. Well, it has to stay important as we advance to spiritual maturity. And then in Ezekiel 14:12, we read, Then God gives them a personal message here. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, cut off from it both man and beast, then, let's skip down to verse 14 or 13. Let me look at my text here. Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it, I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by righteousness. I want you to note it's three men. Noah's a Gentile. Job's a Gentile. Sandwiched between them is the contemporary of the Jews, Daniel. Why not Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why not Moses and Joshua and David? Why these three? Because Noah built an ark for 120 years and was faced with continuous uh, attacks. He was ridiculed. He was maligned day in and day out. Yet he never compromised the word. He stood fast with God. He never violated his priorities. What about Job? Job lost his, his 
ten kids, his seven sons and three daughters. His wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And, uh, and Job went to his friends for counsel and they gave him, gave him bad advice. But despite all that, he faltered a few places, but he stayed fast with God. He never violated his priorities. And then, Daniel. See, these three men faced incredible crises in their lives. They, they faced incredible opposition. They faced overwhelming pressure to compromise their stand on the truth. But they didn't. Why didn't they? Because they had built a fortress in their soul. We studied the stress busters. We'll go over them again. But we studied the principles that God gives us so that we can strengthen our soul to withstand any storm. And it only comes from a consistent and dedicated learning of doctrine and applying it in our lives and being positive and not giving up despite all the pressure. Not giving in to peer pressure, not giving in to all of the easy uh, solutions that life presents, but always standing firm on the Word. Now, when we come back next time, we'll start in Daniel 1 and start looking at the Babylonian and Chaldean background to the passage with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this what you've taught us this evening, for the example of Daniel, the challenge to take an uncompromising stand on your word and to maintain doctrine as the number one priority in our lives. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we studied, that the Holy Spirit would bring them to our memory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.